In 2041, the fate of Antarctica will be decided as the current treaty that protects the Earth's last great wilderness from exploitation comes to an end. Our guest on this show, Robert Swan, the polar environmentalist, talks to us about the remaining 20 years of a 50-year mission to preserve Antarctica as a natural reserve for science and peace. Ten years ago, I had the privilege of spending a month with him travelling to and learning about Antarctica on an expedition he's led each year to take climate scientists, business leaders and students to see firsthand the effects of climate change on this most remarkable of environments. He tells us about what he's learned about leadership and his mission to raise awareness and create a community of leaders willing to take action. Welcome back to The Evolving Leader. I'm Scott Allender. And I'm John Gomes. How are you feeling today, Scott? Uh, I'm feeling good. I'm feeling a bit tired. Just returned uh, from an impromptu trip with the family to an amusement park. So I don't know if you've done that with your family, John, but amusement no. park tired is a different kind of tired. Um, but I also feel like we made a really important deposit in the Summertime Memories Fund for our children. So I'm feeling really grateful and really energized about today. How are you feeling, John? Uh, I'm feeling a mixture of uh, nostalgia and yearning for adventure. Um, mm. <laughs> our guest today, I spent quite a considerable amount of time um, in, in Antarctica with a decade ago. And I'm really excited today that we're joined by the polar explorer and environmentalist, Robert Swan. Mm. Well, I'm really excited about this too. So let me set the table. For those who may not know, Robert Swan is the first person in history to walk both the North and South Poles. And after seeing firsthand the effects of climate change, Robert has dedicated himself to protecting Antarctica and our planet at large through the promotion of recycling, renewable energy, and sustainability to combat the effects of climate change. And his contributions to education and the environment have been recognized through his appointment as UN Goodwill Ambassador for Youth, a visiting professorship at the School of Environment at Leeds University, and in 1994, he became special envoy to the Director General of UNESCO. Robert, welcome to The Evolving Leader. How are you feeling? I'm feeling fantastic. Uh, I'm here in uh, Northern California. We've had some very, very hot weather for the time of year, but I'm out on my bicycle, feeling strong and delighted to be on the programme. Welcome, Robert. Can we start with uh, the goal that shaped your life's work, including setting up 2041? Well, this began at the age of 11 when I saw a film about the real explorers. I'm not an explorer. Uh, I actually believe that the last great exploration left on Earth is for us to survive on Earth. When I was 11, I saw these incredible stories of the great explorers who went to the South and the North Poles. And I thought, right, I want some of that. And I wanted to become the first person to walk to the North and South Poles, big dream. Everybody laughed, they still do, but we did it. <laughs> and after those journeys, uh, I was given a mission to try and make sure that we have the sense, all of us, to leave Antarctica, the last great wilderness left on earth, alone as a natural reserve land for science and peace. And we've been working on that, John, you know, for 30 years, that mission, and we have exactly 20 years to go uh, because in 2041, the world will decide that's when the treaties come up for review and we've got to make sure we do the right thing. 
I'm sure a lot of people will have a kind of palpable question in their mind about the perils of the journeys that you went on, those those first journeys. Um, you said a few years ago, the draw was the place itself, the tragedy, the drama, the story, the diaries of Scott. There is no edge. There are no lies because it wants you dead. Very, very, very poetic. Where, where, where have you faced, where did you face, you know, the peril and what did you learn about yourself in the process? Well, I, you know, we, we, I never did this on my own. You know, I, I would still be in a warehouse in the east end of London on the River Thames talking about doing this. So it really was a, a, an extraordinary group of people that came together. And, you know, one looks back and it's hard to imagine that to get to Antarctica 30 years ago, you couldn't fly there as a private citizen. You had to take a ship. You had to go and live in Antarctica in a box with, you know, four people that you didn't get on well with for nine months, four months of darkness, you know, huge test of isolation. You know, we've been going through a lot of isolation, all of us recently, and I learned a lot about isolation inside that hut. And then three of us walked to the pole. But in those days, no fancy GPS, no radio communications. You're heading off 900 miles into the middle of Antarctica and there's nothing there. So no backup, no, no can't ring up mummy on the iPhone 12. You know, this was hard to imagine today. No satellite phones, nothing. So the danger was ever present that if you made mistakes, you weren't going to come home. And I think that in today's society, it's hard to imagine that, even I find it hard to imagine that we did that, but that was the way it was to both poles in those days. And now on our journeys, because we haven't finished yet, you know, we're in the middle of a huge campaign and mission to finish our journey uh, of crossing Antarctica, and now I've got a satellite phone. It's fantastic. But the big danger was no communications, no backup. And if you fell down a crevasse or injured yourself, you'd be left to die. Simple as that. So it was ever present. But I think the biggest dangers that hit us came from something that no one had ever talked about. That when we walked to the South Pole, after about a month out of 70 days, nine hours a day, seven days a week, you know, our eyes began to burn. And then our faces, literally, it felt like the whole skin had erupted out and then the huge layers of skin just ripped off our faces. And we didn't know why. And we hadn't read about this in Scott's diaries and Shackleton's diaries and Amundsen's diaries of 100 years before. And we didn't know what was going on, but we forged on, got to the pole, came back, and we were told by NASA that we'd walked under the hole in the ozone layer the month it was discovered. And in those days, you didn't have sort of fancy Oakley goggles. You just had a sort of pair of really quite grim, dark glasses, and the ultraviolet rays had ripped us to pieces. And that was something that, changed my life and then we went to the North Pole and you know it's enough danger walking across a frozen ocean with polar bears and minus 60 degrees Celsius you know it's pretty hard anyhow and then we got 100 miles from the North Pole and the entire ocean 
melted beneath our feet. Now, this is way before climate change, sustainability, global warming. No one had mentioned it. But the ice caps melted. We were 642 miles from land. No rescue. No one could get to us. And we had to fight through you know, an ocean that was melting beneath our feet. Um, now, you can't walk to the North Pole. There's no ice. So those moments of danger, not present to ourselves walking, that's, in answer to your question, why did I come out of all of that determined to do my best? Well, if you've touched it, seen it, witnessed it that close, and it damn near fried your face off, burnt out your eyes, and nearly drowned the team, I think you kind of take it a bit more seriously. Talk us through the leadership lessons that you gained as a result of those initial expeditions. Well, I think that for anybody starting something, you know, starting up a business, it's pretty tough. Now, imagine this. You're 23 years of age. You're English. You have a degree in ancient history. And your mission is to try and raise five million pounds a lot of money today, but a real lot of money 30-odd years ago, and you've never been camping properly. You've never been on an expedition. All you've got is this dream to want to follow in the footsteps of the explorers. And you can imagine that that wasn't the strongest sales pitch. So I hired a small warehouse in the east end of London, thought I could raise the money in a couple of weeks, and after five years <clears throat> working as a taxi driver on the streets of London, I'd raised no money. Everybody rightly said no. And I think I learned uh, that listening to why people say no and eventually adjusting your pitch a little bit better, you'll get people to say yeah. and, and yes. And holding on to that dream, showing that persistence, showing people that you're not going to back down, that you're determined to make this happen. I think I learned that in <clears throat> raising the money to do this. It took seven years of my life to do it. On the actual journeys, I think what I learned was that, you know, especially in isolation, imagine being in a hut on the edge of Antarctica, 3,000 miles from civilization, it's dark for four months with very strong different characters that you don't really get on well with, but you need them for the team. You know, diversity on a team is strong. You know, choose all your best friends, you're going to die in the first week. So very strong, different characters in total isolation. I think I learned that humor will conquer all when you're in isolation and feeling very stressed, allowing humour to dispel the, that tension that's kind of in the air. I learned that, I think, that trying to tell each other the truth, not hiding things under the table. And I think, in my case especially, listening to what people are really saying to you not listening to what you want to hear. So we came through that bit. And on the actual journey, I think I learned something about real leadership because I am not an explorer. 
as you well know, I'm not a person that really enjoys tying knots and living in a tent with smelly people. I'm not really that sort of person. So on day one, after all those years, when we started walking, I really practiced servant leadership. And I became on that day, no longer the leader that Roger, the brilliant Roger Meir and Gareth Wood, the sort of people that climb Everest in their underpants before breakfast, they would lead. And I didn't look over their shoulder. I truly trusted them. And my job was to just pull my sledge and support them. True empowerment, true saying, okay, gentlemen, it's in your hands. I'm here to support you. No criticism, no feedback, just get on with it. And I think actually on the journey, trust, I learned trust. Because if you don't trust yourself, how the hell can you ask other people to trust you? And if that trust is life or death, which it is in our case, I learned that. And I think finally, dealing with disaster. Um, you know, we've been in Antarctica for a year. We'd spoken to no one for the outside world for a year. And we arrive at the South Pole Scientific Station after 70 days, I lost 69 pounds in body weight. So a bit thin. It was quite hard work. And we arrived at the South Pole to be greeted with the news that our ship that had dropped us off a year before had returned to Antarctica to collect us and had been crushed by ice and had sunk mm. five minutes before we arrived at the pole. Not the best news. Um, I went bankrupt on that day. But I think I learnt track record, gentlemen, track record is not something you just get where people trust what you say you're going to do. And it, we promised Jacques Cousteau that we would remove all our rubbish and garbage from Antarctica. And I had no ship. I was bankrupt. It was 3,000 miles home. But with a tremendous effort of people living for another year in Antarctica and no one ever being paid, uh, eventually we got another ship in and pulled out all of that rubbish and equipment and did what we said we were going to do. And I think that has served us well as a small team since, because people, when however ridiculous the idea might be, if you've got a little bit of a track record, people will say, okay, well, we'll give Rob the benefit of the doubt, even if it's for five minutes, that that counts when you, when you have a proposal or, you know, a leadership idea. So I think those were the lessons that we came out from both polls with. Uh, and I think the last thing was, was a belief. You know, people talk about believing in what you do and, I think leadership has to be real. It has to be authentic and believing, believing in what you're doing and what you're saying really counts still, I think. I really do. Those are the lessons we came out with and it didn't mean make me an any better person or possibly a better leader, but it did do something for me, I think. So as I understand it, uh, the French ocean explorer, Jacques Cousteau was instrumental in setting your 50-year mission to save Antarctica from climate change. Can you tell us about your time with him? 
Well, what an extraordinary gentleman. And uh, he became actually my patron uh, way before this mission. He helped me to undertake those journeys to the North and South Poles. And I think that, you know, anybody listening, you know, giving people credibility as a leader, is, it doesn't cost you anything to actually help people with credibility. And he gave me credibility. He gave me his name and I was able to raise the money to undertake these journeys. And at the end of those journeys, it was payback time. And he said, right, Rob, you've done really well, well done, but uh, could you take on a 50-year mission, young man, uh, <laughs> to help save Antarctica? And by the way, there's no budget. And only a few years later, sadly, he died. So, uh, yeah, he, he was an extraordinary man, the first real environmental leader of the ocean. And I think he reminded us of something, that we do live on planet ocean. We don't live on planet Earth. Mm. And if we mess with the ocean, it'll come and get us. If you're enjoying The Evolving Leader, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. And don't forget to follow along on Instagram and LinkedIn. You can find us at Evolving Leader. Thank you for listening. Now, let's get back to the show. So when I, when I was 11, I remember being in the library at school and finding a book on Antarctica. And I started reading about Scott. And, you know, and so I had this long established dream of going to Antarctica. And um, I promised and myself. And you did. Well, I did eventually, yes. <laughs> at 40, I promised myself I did it, but I had a personal crisis with the business at that time. And so I, I postponed it and I managed to do it a few years later. When I was looking around, there was you know an abundance of these kind of like um, tourist type things, but that wouldn't work. And then we came across 2041 and myself and another friend um, reached out to you and we, uh, and we joined your, um, your cause. Um, so just to take us back from what, what, what turned from, from these initial trips into creating 2041. I think that one is that the places hadn't killed me. <laughs> and, you know, these places are seriously wanting you dead. So I sort of felt I sort of owed something a little bit to the North and South Poles. That was a kind of childlike thing. Uh, and I, as I say, you know, felt a bit lost after both poles. I really did feel lost because we'd done it. And I ended up with huge debts after losing the ship. And it was just all grim <clears throat> and awful and hard. And I was looking for something and Jacques Cousteau filled the gap and said, Rob, why don't you preserve Antarctica? Here's a 50-year mission, young man. Get on with it. So I think that's where it really turned for me to... In a way, walking to both poles is completely and utterly pointless. There's no point to it. Um, there really isn't. Uh, yeah, I became the first person in history to walk to both poles, but you know that's really kind of pointless and rather odd and possibly could be even seen as being rather selfish. So finding 2041 and having that mission really became the focus of everything in my life for 50 years. We're 30 years down on that mission and <clears throat> we have 20 years to go. 
I feel it turned for all kinds of different reasons, but I don't think anything really works in life for a mission, for a business, setting up things and making changes to your life and doing all the good things, being a better leader. I don't think that happens if it's on the surface. It's just an idea and it's words. I think it has to really mean something deep down inside. And preserving Antarctica is our last chance to show people thousands of years from now that we truly cared to leave one place alone on earth. And it is our last chance. So that idea of fighting the system <clears throat> to make that happen has, has, has kept me energized for 30 years. And, you know, I've got another 20 years to do and we'll get it done. I'd love to hear more about the treaties and what's at stake in 2041. Well, in 2041, right now, no one owns Antarctica, and as Jean knows, you know, it's, it's the last amazing wilderness. It is for science, it is for peace. But people are thinking about, you know, could we have a bit of it? And in 1959, uh, the original treaty was signed. And then in 1991, they put a moratorium, an extra piece on that treaty to say, hands off this until 2041, 50 years. And that's why we're entirely focused on the year 2041, at the worst, at the worst, to try and get another 50 years, but at the very best, to just say, look, let's just leave this place alone, because nobody owns it. But it's been a very, very interesting 30-year mission to make sure that that's not just words. You know, how do you help preserve a continent twice the size of Australia? Talk, talk, talk us through some of the milestones then in terms of, of what 2041 has become. Well, I think that in 2041, the world will decide. And we need to get as many people behind that as possible. And my biggest fear is that, um, you know, as <clears throat> Scott said earlier, you know, my, one of my biggest fears with all of this is that it goes under the radar, that people sort of make decisions without the world knowing about, about 2041 and the fact that we could save it. And they make some decisions. They say so they allow some exploratory drilling in Antarctica for scientific purposes, or we allow more fishing closer to the edge of the, you know, then it's all over because you have precedent. So my main goal <clears throat> is to try and make sure that people know about this. And there's two real ways of, of doing this, which we've tried to do. One is to engage with young people. As you well know, we always take young people to Antarctica. And because uh, they'll be voting you know, I'll be 186 by 2041. Mind you, my mother's 106 coming up in October. So hopefully I'm still oh, wow. in the ring uh, in um, 2041. But I think it's making sure we pull it above the radar. One is young people, getting young people engaged. Um, and we, we, as you know, have taken uh, 4,000 leaders to Antarctica. The second thing is business because business counts. And why would people go to Antarctica? They'd go there 
because of fossil fuels. They go there for energy. And uh, so I made the decision 15, 20 years ago to say, okay, if I can help promote the use of renewable energy more in the real world and push renewable energy to scale, help that happen, then KPMG will save Antarctica, not me, because they'll just tell people it's not financially worth going there because it'll cost too much money. And John, you know how bloody far away Antarctica is and how hostile it is. So people will go to Antarctica um, or not go to Antarctica because it doesn't make financial sense. So renewable energy champion, inspiring young people to raise the game. And obviously, you know, we have a, a, a campaign and a run-in to 2041 in the works. So young people, renewable energy, and making sure that we keep the issue above the radar has been how we've tried to do that for 30 years. Talk, talk us through the last few years, because you've been doing not only that, but you've been doing some pretty amazing things in Antarctica. Um, well, and you, know, you did a TEDx, you've, done, uh, you've taken renewable technologies down there, you've done all sorts of things, and you've tried to do this amazing uh, trip across Antarctica. Talk, talk well, us about all of that. Well, I think it's, you know, in my business, sadly, it's like being in, in you know, where Scott is in, uh, you know, Los Angeles and films and all that sort of stuff that's down his way. It's that, you know, really in my business, you're only as good as your last expedition. You can't sort of rely on what you did 100 years ago. You've got to be doing stuff now. And enter to the story, John, my son, Barney, um, who was, you know, I don't know, just a sort of youth when we were on the expedition to Antarctica. But, you know, he, he came to me, and I'm, I think parents listening uh, might feel this one. He came to me when he was I don't know, 21, 22, and he said, Dad, I'm sick of being Rob Swan's son. And I said, well, I'm really sorry. And he said, no, 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 I like being your son, but why should I always be living in the shadow of this sort of person that walked to both poles? And I said, well, what's your plan? And he said, well, I'm worried about how young people really feel about the state of the planet that you lot have left us. And we're angry, we're frustrated, we're, we're pointing fingers at governments, we want to point fingers at industry and business. And he said, that's great, Dad, but it's not going to get us anywhere if all we are is angry. So I said, well, what's the plan? And he said, I, I would like to uh, help young people feel that they can turn that anger and frustration into some easy, convenient, doable solutions, click of a mouse, job done. And I said, well, this, this is, sounds great, Barney. Get on with it. I love it. And he said, there's only one catch, Dad, that I want you to walk to the South Pole with me. And I said, no, there's absolutely no ways I'm going to walk to the South Pole. Job's done. I'm not ever going to do that again. And he said, well, would you like to make this journey for two other reasons? I said, well, I'm listening, but I'm not that happy. And he said, <clears throat> if we do it only on renewable energy, it's never been done. I said, I'm interested. And he said, but dad, if you looked at the map, if we make this journey, you will have crossed the whole 
of the Antarctic landmass on foot. And I thought, hang on, this sounds good. Renewable energy and another extra story to tell people who are willing to listen to our story. So I thought, okay, game on, young man, I'll do this. And, you know, honestly, being arrogant or thinking you could do things is very dangerous. And I thought, well, 600 miles, I've walked to both poles, I can do this, it's easy. So working with NASA, incredible organization, it's one of the reasons I live here in <clears throat> California. Uh, working with them, they produce these incredible ice melters where you can fill up this little pot with ice and snow and, you know, <clears throat> six hours later through solar, you've got hot water. Incredible. Mm -hmm. They'll use that technology on Mars one day. And well, off we went, father and son. I think it's so important that generations join together on this issue. We haven't got the time to have, you know, the older generation doing this and the young. We've got to join it together. So it was a great story. So excited. After 300 miles out of 600, I fail. I fall to bits. My left hip disintegrates and I face failure. And as you know, I've failed in everything in life, but I'd never failed to get to the pole when I said I was going to get there. This was terrible. Leaving my 23-year-old son with two companions to complete the journey. I, it was just the worst moment of failure. <clears throat> really terrible. And Barney said, don't worry, Dad, I've got this one. And he carried on to the pole, successfully made that journey. And I realized then that it had nothing to do with me anymore, that it was his moment passing the bat on. And they made that journey successfully. But being a stubborn idiot, uh, who has to look at a map of Antarctica every day, I wasn't going to look at a map with 300 miles to go to have crossed Antarctica. And I thought, right, game on. So I had a brand new hit put in, got fit, got strong, got a fantastic new team together, led by two women, Johanna and Katinka from Norway, um, and Kyle, our brilliant cameraman. And we set off... Um, to the South Pole, 300 miles to go. Hip was perfect, had fun for the first time on an expedition because I was properly led by people who knew how to do it properly. No stiffer upper lip, uh, upper lip British nonsense. <clears throat> and it was great. Again, testing out more renewable technology to preserve Antarctica. 97 miles from the pole. I mean, you can see it. After... 1,400 miles on foot over 35 years, three big expeditions, I lose my discipline. Get out of the tent, trip over awkwardly on some ice, and my brand new hip blew out of its socket, and I was left mm. crying in the snow. It was terrible. Again, a major catastrophe of failure because you don't just go back to the South Pole. It costs half a million dollars to go back to the South Pole. So I'm lying there in the ice thinking, I can't do this. Come back home. COVID strikes. Everything collapses. And I think, actually, well, hang on a minute. You've been talking about all this sort of 
delivery against the odds and being resilient, stop being such a pathetic person, Rob, pull yourself together. So I had a few nuts and bolts put in the hip. And at the end of next year, I'm going back to finish the dam 97 miles to the South Pole, John. And I thought, hmm, bit boring just for an old Englishman. I'll be 65 years old to do that. I thought a bit boring for me to go and sort of put the Union Jack in at the South Pole, rather boring. So I've pulled together an incredible team of wounded veterans, people who've lost arms and legs, great people, and we'll go all together. Um, Because I think the word resilience really counts. And if we think this COVID thing's gone, it hasn't. We're going to have to deal with this for a long time and we're going to have to show discipline and resilience. And the most special thing for me will be to feel that I'm with a group of people who've suffered from war, Jean, suffered from war. And Antarctica should never have war darken its doors. So I think that would be a beautiful message. And then... I can take my skis, Scott, and bolt them to the wall, not hang them on the wall, bolt them to the wall. That will be it. Job done. And then we're heading off around the world on a yacht in nice warm conditions to um, finish off our our, um, campaign on 2041. So it'll be warmer climbs from now onwards once I've Mm. finished the expedition. So, Rob, how can other people get involved in 2041? Because I have to say that out of everything that I've done in my life, the trip to Antarctica uh, in 2011 will always stand out as not only being just an incredible adventure, but life-changing in terms of my worldview, my values, my commitment um, from a leadership perspective to the future. And I can't recommend it highly enough. And that's why we sent other members of our team there. We also sponsored a vet who was an amputee who got a tremendous amount from the experience incredibly important to us so how can people get involved in your activity what are the range of things that they can do i think that's really kind and i have to say without embarrassing you that your contribution on board that expedition was terrific and you really put yourself out to help other people and i think that in anything in life uh, you showed that what you put in you get out and if people don't put in, they don't get out in life. I, I really believe that. Um, I think that what we are undertaking in the not too distant future is in March in 2022. Uh, we're having the, the, the most important expedition we've done because it's marking 20 years until 2041. So we're going south um, March 24th to April 4th. And... Uh, People are more than welcome to join us. And we take, you know, young people, students. We have a a student expedition. They're making a film, which is incredible, on uh, carbon capture and how people can be involved in pulling out the filth from our atmosphere and doing the right thing. So we've got a student team. We have lots of eminent businesswomen and businessmen, such as yourself, who come on board but really, it, it, it's an expedition. It's not a, a, a cruise or a, it's a proper expedition. And Jumper, you'll be glad to hear, our 
safety officer is still very much in, in, in evidence and keeping everybody safe. But it's really about leadership as well, because I can't save Antarctica yet. All I can do is lay the seeds, because you know, Boris Johnson and Mr. Biden aren't going to be focused on the preservation of Antarctica yet. So people come away, as you know, with some better leadership skills. They come away with some public speaking skills. They come away with some knowledge on sustainability. We have energy uh, talks, all kinds of things in the evening where people can learn and go back and be better leaders in their own teams. Um, you know that. Uh, that. That's the purpose of the expedition. My purpose is that in 20 years' time, I can pick up the phone and say, right, game on. You've become a hugely successful leader. Will you help save Antarctica? It's Rob. Game on. Time to, to do the job. So anybody who would like to apply and come with us on, on that expedition, you know, family, you know, father and son, mother and son, you know, father and daughter. That's a, a really very positive thing that people do. Um, so that's in March in 2022. And we have a little foundation um, to do with the preservation of Antarctica. Um, and I think it doesn't matter. They don't have to do anything, but actually just think, oh, wow, we could be part of saving a continent. Who gets that chance in life? And, you know, it doesn't, just as long as it's in their heads, I think that's the most important thing that people can kindly do. So where do people go to contribute to your foundation? Well, they can come to um, 2041-2041-foundation.org. And in the United States, Scott, it's a sort of 501c3 and all of that. And they can look at that um, a foundation. There's a little website. It's not very flash. And I don't like spending money on things that, you know, I don't need, I only have a small team of about four people that run all of this. Um, so we keep it tight. So anybody who does contribute, they know the money's going um, to, to really sending John, which we do every year, like you do, sending people that possibly couldn't afford to come um, from nations that it's hard to raise the money to come. So that's what the foundation does, send, sends young people to become champions in their own country on this issue. So that's great. Robert, this has been uh, so incredible. Is there anything else you want to, any other messages you want to leave for our listeners as we come to a close? I think that, you know, I've tried to live by these words and failed most of the time, but I've kept trying and they are, if you can do or dream you can, begin it now. For being bold has genius, power, and magic in it. And I wish everybody the very best of luck. Stay disciplined, because what we're going through now will not go away unless we actually show discipline so good luck to you all and thanks so much for being on the program thanks rob thank Been you robert absolute pleasure so evolving leader friends we do hope you will get involved with 2041 and to close our show today let's close it in the words of our guest who says 
the greatest threat to our planet is the belief that someone else will save it.